Hi, I'm Elise Lunan, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Dan Heath. Before we get to our conversation, I want to give a quick shout out to Tesla Watches who helped make today's episode possible. The tech team at Goop is always scouting out the latest and greatest productivity tools, and they recently tested out the newest creation by Timex, the Tesla Watch. It contains a chip that syncs up to the battery and is designed to mimic Earth's natural frequency. This kind of technology is intended to help keep the body's own electromagnetic field in balance. To learn more about the Tesla Watch and Timex's new innovative technology, head to teslarwatches.com. Enter code GOOP20 for 20% off. That's code GOOP20. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing, that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dan Heath is the New York Times bestselling author, with his brother Chip, of Decisive, Switch, Made to Stick, and The Power of Moments. He's a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center and previously worked as a researcher and case writer for Harvard Business School. He's also the author of a new book, Upstream, which is what we're talking about today. Dan explains why we get stuck in a cycle of responses. We always seem to be fixing one problem after another. We take each hit as it comes. But Dan suggests that we need to instead make our way upstream to fix the systems that cause the problems in the first place. We talk about the psychological forces that keep us headed downstream. He points out what our blind spots are with problem solving, and we'll hear success stories about what happens when upstream thinking results in massive change. And ultimately, we'll learn how to move out of reaction into prevention and to move from a downstream mindset into thinking upstream. Macro often starts with micro, that what really tunes you in to a problem in all of its facets is when you get so close that you're talking about Steve rather than homelessness. Let's get to my conversation with Dan Heath. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here with you. So what exactly is upstream thinking? The word upstream is something I learned from a parable I heard about a decade ago that's, that's well-known in public health. It's, it's often attributed to a guy named Irving Zola, and it goes like this. You and a friend are having a picnic on uh, the side of a river. And you've just laid out your blanket to, uh, to have your picnic. And, and just as you're beginning to sit down, you hear a noise from the direction of the river and you look back and there's a kid splashing around in the river, apparently drowning. So you both jump in instinctively and you fish the kid out, you bring him to shore. And no sooner have you brought them to shore, you hear another shout and you look back. It's a second child, again, splashing in the river, drowning. Back in you go, you bring them to shore and... 
Then there are two more kids. So you both are back in, and so begins a kind of revolving door of rescue, and you're starting to get fatigued from all of the life-saving work. And at that moment, you see your friend swim to the shore and, and step out and appear to start walking away as though to leave you alone. And you say, hey, where are you going? I can't do this alone. There's all these kids. And your friend says, I'm going to go upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. <laughs> and, and that, in a nutshell, is, is what this book is about, is how often in life we get trapped in this cycle of reaction. You know, we're responding to emergencies. We're putting out fires again and again and again. And it can become so habitual that we forget to go upstream and try to solve things at a systems level that might have prevented the need for emergency response. So let's start with healthcare, since I know it's a huge part of your book, mm -hmm. and it seems to be something that we're all really thinking about right now in particular. And I know a lot of a lot of upstream is solving these issues that before they get downstream, right? Before they become more expensive and more insidious and more difficult to treat. Yet that seems to be what we prefer, right? Because there's like a heroism in solving problems, whereas it's invisible to prevent problems. <laughs> Exactly right. I mean, we've got a, a healthcare system that's largely designed as like a giant undo button. You know, yeah. you develop a problem of some kind, your knee hurts, your head hurts, there's a problem with your heart, you go into the health system, we try to reverse that out. And virtually everything in the healthcare system is devoted to that, to fixing problems as they pop up. There's very, very little that's actually designed to make you healthier. As yeah. a person, there were some focus groups that were conducted because anytime you bring up healthcare, people think, oh gosh, partisan politics, nobody agrees, there's bitter debates about this. So there was a group called the Health Initiative that had some focus groups to see how would African American Democratic women divvy up the healthcare budget and could they compare that with white Republican women? And so they gave them a choice. They said, imagine that you had $100 to divvy up among the various buckets, you know, ranging from the formal health system to providing better housing to providing better food quality and so forth. And they gave them a chance to allocate that money. And what the, uh, the, the female African-American Democrats said was, we think that about two-thirds of the budget should go to upstream health, you know, better food better housing, better conditions, better safety, and about a third should go to the health system, right? Makes sense, about two thirds to keep you healthy, a third to fix you when you're broken. And so the question was, well, what would, what would the other side say? And so they brought in the white Republican women, they asked them the same question. Would you believe they said basically exactly the same thing down to almost the percentage point? So even across the aisle, even uh, despite these supposedly bitter partisan debates, we all kind of have a similar model in our mind of how the world should work. And it's a model that in no way corresponds to our actual world. And so one of the, the themes in the book is about, can we get out of this habit of constantly reacting to problems, health problems, education problems, business problems, and can we get upstream to address the forces to fix them? Right. And I think you, you wisely point out that it can feel really good to be the person who stays up all night to save the day. And we kind of become addicted to this, you know, acute care, this, like, that's the fun. When I talk to my physician friends, like, that's the fun medicine. You know, that's when you're really, that's the superhero moment when you're, you know, defibrillating someone's heart. It's not when you're sort of helping them manage their diabetes. 
Absolutely. I mean, we have a sort of cult of heroics in mm-hmm. a way that we we prize the people that can come in and save the day. If you think of who pops to mind when I say hero, firefighter, police officer, a lifeguard, first responder, it's people who are emerging in crisis situations to do something about it. But if you flip it and you say, what about all those people who keep the day from needing to be saved? You know, the, the, the person who taught lifeguards how to scan a pool more safely, or the person who invented smarter building codes so there weren't as many fires that broke out, or the, the coach in high school who mentored young people and kept them out of trouble with the law. I mean, their work is invisible. Yeah. Nobody talks about them. Nobody celebrates them. They get no glory. And so there's this real tension where, despite the fact that upstream work is clearly what we would all prefer, I mean, we'd much rather live in a world where the problems were gone rather than us having to respond to the emergencies, that there are issues with uh, the emotional side. You mm-hmm. know, how, how do you celebrate an upstream victory? Do you even recognize it when it happens? Yeah, and exactly. And we only know that our healthcare system is broken by obviously what we see around us and how it's, you know, crippling people and crippling our own government and debt. And then you look at, not I mean, it's hard to compare other countries to the U.S. because we're so complex, but you talk about Norway and and how we're the only outlier, right? We spend $1 upstream and $1 downstream. And most companies are following what those women so wisely suggested two upstream to one or 2.5 to one. So Norway, an infant mortality, Norway is fifth. The U.S. is 34th. And life expectancy, Norway is fifth. U.S. is 29th. Least stress, Norway is first. U.S. is 21st. Happiness, Norway is third. U.S. is 19th. And we spend roughly the same percentage of GDP on healthcare. They're just spending more upstream. And I think for a lot of people hearing this, this is going to be surprising. And by the way, I should acknowledge the work of Elizabeth Taylor and Lauren Bradley, who brought to bear this this idea that when we talk about how expensive the U.S. healthcare system is, it's certainly true. I mean, we spend more in the formal healthcare system per person than any other country in the world by far. That's yeah. true. It's like $10,000 per person, I think. It, it's something extraordinary, and it's yeah. an outlier. Uh, if you look at the graph, it's like everybody else is clustered together, and then there's us. But, but if you engage in the thought experiment of upstream plus downstream spending, meaning the spending on keeping people healthy versus the spending on fixing people, and you treat that as one big bucket, all of a sudden the U.S. is not very remarkable. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden the U.S. is kind of uh, in the middle of the pack in some ways. And so what's interesting is you look at a country like Norway that, as you said, spends exactly the same on a percentage you know, per person basis of, of GDP, and, and they've just, it, it's like we've turned up the base knob and they've turned up the treble knob. It, it's not that one is, is spending more than the other. It's that we have very different priorities. And so when you hear people say, well, the U.S. has the best healthcare system in the world, we need to add a provision to that. The U.S. has the best healthcare system in the world if you have the right kind of insurance, the right kind of money, and if you are using the healthcare system to combat a very serious problem, mm-hmm. chronic disease or, or, or heart disease or cancer. That's why, you know, Saudi princes fly to Houston and Boston to get their care because we have extraordinary undue capabilities. Right. What we don't have, if you're answering the question, where is the healthiest place in the world to grow up? I mean, the U.S. is not even on the list. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is not in the top five or the top 10 or the top 20. 
And that's a function of the way we've set our priorities. We've chosen to spend more money on the fix-it side than on the make-people-healthy side. Right. And then we there's really no version of equality in this country either. As you point out, you know, you can live in a different zip code that's a handful of miles away and have a dramatically different life expectancy based on a whole handful of variables, the housing in your neighborhood, the trauma looping, the lack of access to potable water and other environmental issues, et cetera. So there's so much also environmental racism and also just sort of insidious social factors that play into this as well, that by not addressing, we're sort of all collectively suffering, but obviously some communities more egregiously than others. But that, I think, is really interesting, too, the the part of the book where you talk about life expectancy. Mm. Because what you point out, which is, I was like, oh, right, duh. Like, we are always talking about how our life expectancy is, even though I think it's dropping because of the opioid crisis, but that our life expectancy is just so much dramatically better than it was 100 years ago. But you point to that being weighted by one particular factor. Yeah, so here, here are the stats. In 1900, the average life expectancy was 47 years. 100 years later, it was 77 years. We had a 30 years of lifespan. I mean, uh, talk about triumphs. I mean, there, there, there is, there's nothing that's that stunning of an achievement that's happened uh, in our lifetimes. You know, but you think about that century and that remarkable uh, extension of life. What's interesting to me is, is I. I've run into a lot of people who kind of misinterpret that statistic and and they think that, you know, back in 1900, maybe people were getting old in their 40s and, you know, that, that to have a 47-year average life expectancy means, gosh, our, our great-grandparents must have been tottering around at age 49, preparing their wills and, and getting ready for doom. It's actually not that at all. The, the natural lifespan of people hasn't changed that much really at all. What's going on is the reason the average life expectancy was so low in 1900 is that lots of people were dying way too early. So only one child in five made it to the age of five at that time. I mean, think about that. Think about the children in your family. Think about, you know, five of your own kids, your nieces and nephews, cousins. I mean, one out of every five of them would have been gone 100 years ago. And the reason that, that those people, children and young people and mothers in childbirth are not dying anymore is but it's precisely because of upstream health. Mm-hmm. It's because we got smarter about antibiotics and smarter about hygiene and we have better water systems. We have better medical procedures and on and on and on. Vaccines. Vaccines is another great example. And, and so many of the killers of people from that era have been essentially stamped out of existence by public health. And yet, back to that notion of how are we spending our money today? Are we, are we doubling down on the thing that gave us 30 extra years of life expectancy? No. Public health is about 2.5% of spending uh, in the U.S. health budget. 2.5%. Wow. 2.5%. And it's like you would think that people who give you that kind of return on investment, they would be the place you put your first dollars. But, but even today, the public health people have to beg for resources. Yeah, no, it's interesting, too, in in all of the longevity doctors and professors who we talked to at Goop and who we've, many have been on the podcast as well, I mean, they're sort of resounding and they're like, why are we so focused on stamping out, like disease management and stamping out, like, it's great that we're becoming so much better at 
curing cancer and and working with heart disease. But what happens is invariably, as you age, you're just it's a series of hurdles. And if you this hurdle doesn't get you, there's one that's right behind it. And until we start to address aging and what that looks like and things like weight and obesity and all of those lifestyle factors and their impact on health outcomes, we're again just downstream sort of battling diseases as they pop up. And these diseases are typically really hard to manage. They are. And it, let me give you one story of hope here, because this this book is mainly about, yes, upstream is hard, and yes, in many ways, upstream goes against our natural instincts, but but there are many ways that we can do better at this. And, and here's an example of someone who did better in the area of chronic disease. A guy named Darshak Sanghavi worked in the federal government, what's called CMMI. It's uh, the Innovation Center Related to Medicare and Medicaid. And his job was to look for prevention programs that deserved Medicare or Medicaid funding. And so he was keeping his his eye on this one program called the Diabetes Prevention Program, or DPP. And it's a program that's been shown to keep people who are pre-diabetic, you know, right on the cusp of diabetes, but haven't developed a full-blown case yet, to keep them from developing diabetes. And, And so he has to prove two things to get this program to scale up. One is that it makes people healthier. Tons of evidence for that. So that's a check. And the other thing is he has to prove that it saves the government money. Mm-hmm. And so that seems like a slam dunk too, right? Well, if you're going to stop people from developing diabetes, treating diabetes is very expensive. That's going to be a slam dunk. He takes it to the actuaries. He said, this is the program we need to scale up. And the actuaries say, no, we will not certify this program as cost saving. And the reason is that this program mm. makes people live longer and as a result, their health care costs more. And if you're shaking your head right now, uh, I mean, this was the official logic of the federal government. This is not a sick joke that it counted against this program, that it made people live longer, which suggests that maybe some of the highest scoring programs by this same rubric would be like chain smoking, exactly. you know, unplugging traffic signals. And so anyway, Darshak Sanghavi uh, stages an appeal. Around the same time, one of the chief actuaries' direct reports, somebody who was on the cusp of retirement, sends this, this beautiful memo. I wish I could share this whole thing with you. It, where he makes this impassioned case that what they have done with this ruling is morally wrong, that, that it's just not right to, to count against a program for extending lives, and that citizens and the media would be horrified if they knew what this meant. And he also says, you know, actuaries have a special duty because a bad actuarial decision might hurt thousands or millions of people, whereas a bad doctor might only hurt a few. And because of this work, because of Darshak Sanghavi's work and this actuary who wrote the memo's work, it was overturned. The program DPP has been approved for expansion and they have removed the notion that extending life should count against a program and calculating its costs. And so that's what I want to hold up as an example of upstream change. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot of drama in this story, right? There's no hostage taking. There's no gunfight. It's just like some language changed in a federal register somewhere. But it really, really matters because these systems that have the kind of power and ubiquity that Medicare and Medicaid have, a little tweak in a big system can create a big change. And I think that's inspiration for all of you out there who are this kind of invisible hero that, that, that doesn't try to save the day, but just tries to tweak the things in your world to make sure that you leave the world a little better than you found it. 
We'll get back to Dan Heath in just a second. When we think of wellness, our minds usually go to yoga classes, good sleep routines, and meditation. Technology gets a bad rap, but the right kind, when used correctly, can enhance both our productivity and our well-being. One cool innovation at the intersection of wellness, technology, and fashion is the new Tesla watch, designed by the team at Timex. It uses a special technology in a turbo chip that is designed to match the Earth's natural frequency. The goal? to hopefully help keep the body's own electromagnetic field in balance. There are Tesla styles for both men and women, which you can find in their online shop. To learn more about wearable wellness and Tesla technology, head to teslarwatches.com. Get 20% off using code GOOP20. That's GOOP20. Back to my chat with Dan Heath. So, and then in the context of of public health and things like coronavirus, are we are we sort of at the mercy of like a system that doesn't fund or anticipate like or anticipate problems like that, or are we literally just in a global fire drill of unprecedented? Like, is there a way? I mean, it seems like we've been bungling our way through that, but is is there a version of being prepared for things like this that are likely only going to happen? Absolutely. I've I've talked to, I am no expert on pandemics, but I've talked to a lot of people who are, and and they know exactly what to do to build the kind of systems that would protect us from things like the coronavirus. And and the truth is that we've come a long way. We're somewhere in between the poles that you outlined. You know, this is not just a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants response, but it's certainly not a a well-funded, well-designed system either. I was talking to a woman named Julie Pavlin who worked on infectious disease for the Army, and she said that there's always a cycle of crisis and neglect with these things. You know, Ebola hits, it's all over the news. People freak out, the the funding sources open up, people fly to Africa to fight the disease, to contain it. And then when it's out of the news cycle, poof, all the attention's gone, the resources dry up. The investments that we should be making in those local health systems to make sure that they're well-staffed, have, have fresh data, lots of good systems to protect us against the next outbreak, it's harder to get those funded. That's the neglect part of the cycle. Mm. And so I think we should celebrate what public health has achieved. I mean, you would not believe the quality of some of what they call surveillance systems, which is not like creepy surveillance. It's like, how do we know when some weird ailment is popping up somewhere in the world? Incredibly sophisticated. I mean, some of the stories I heard where, you know, there was a clinic in South Korea a few years ago that, that had eight cases of the flu pop up. And within 24 hours, they had samples sent to an army facility in Texas to be analyzed to see, you know, does the current iteration of the flu vaccine cover that particular kind of flu? If not, can we get it in the next cycle? You know, there, there are some amazing things that we can do with information systems and with technology and with collaboration, Mm -hmm. but by no means have we done everything we can do to protect us from things like the coronavirus. Yeah. Which obviously requires a huge amount of global integration and coordination. And it's interesting, too, just thinking about American healthcare and how the world is the primary beneficiary of what we create in terms of drugs and medical inventions. Like we, in a way, it's like, is there a version where a certain percentage of every country's GDP goes into a general, a sort of a global slush fund of research and development that benefits 
the entire world so that we stop being, so we somehow make the whole thing more equitable and fair with input in terms of what these countries also need. And in that budget, is there also, is that where the budget for pandemics comes from so that we're, the U.S. can sort of not pull away, but start to also focus on all this upstream health for our own citizens. Like there's something, there's a, an imbalance. And I think, I think what these, these kinds of upstream issues require is new kinds of collaboration. Yeah. You know, so many of our organizations are set up to, to specialize and to focus. If you even think about your own job and, you know, you listening wherever you work, it's like you probably are within a business unit, maybe within a function. And, and the way we think about setting up organizations is we want to divide and conquer and we want to get people to specialize and, and get really, really good at their little thing. And, and that's wonderful for efficiency and it's wonderful for productivity, but it also creates this fragmentation. Mm-hmm. And what, what it takes to prevent problems is often a collection of perspectives, a collection of, of insights into a problem that you can't get from any one particular silo. Like I'll give you an example from, uh, there's a city called Rockford. It's the second biggest city in Illinois behind Chicago. And they, they had a perpetual problem with veteran homelessness. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the mayor, uh, Larry Morrissey, who had been working on the problem for nine years. And by his own admission, they hadn't gotten anywhere. You know, he said, at best, we were treading water. And then 10 months later, Rockford became the first city in the United States to eliminate the problem of veteran homelessness. So the question is, what happened in those 10 months to change things after nine years of of inaction? And what happened was basically two things. Number one, back to this theme of collaboration, for the first time they got everyone in the community with some link to the problem of homelessness to gather around the table. Mm -hmm. So it was social services, it was the VA, it was homeless shelters, it was the police, it was the fire department, it was people from the, the health system. And when they got together, they weren't just talking abstractly about, hey, what should we do about homelessness or how should we you know, change city policy? What they were talking about were specific homeless people. So they created what's called a by-name list, meaning that in Rockford they have a real-time census of every homeless person in the community by name. I mean, I saw this thing. It's a Google Doc, and you go down, and it's like there's Michael and Steve. And when they got together, what they're talking about is Michael. You know, who's seen Michael last week? Well, he was still under the bridge. He's got his tent set up, but he's been coming into the shelter for lunch most days. Okay, well, it turns out we have a housing placement for Michael. Who's on the best terms with him? Who, who can reach out and see if he's ready to be housed? They're solving problems on an individual by individual basis. Mm-hmm. What I think is so powerful about that is we tend to think that if we're going to solve a big macro problem, that it's going to require you know, some kind of 10,000-foot view solution. And yet what I saw again and again and again in my research is that macro often starts with micro, mm-hmm. that, that what really tunes you in to a problem in all of its facets is when you get so close that you're talking about Steve rather than homelessness. Mm-hmm. And, and on top of that, if you think about the motivations for all these people at the table, the fire department has different goals and incentives than the health system, and the health system has different goals and incentives than the social services people. But what they all share is a desire to help one of their community members that's living on the street. It's like that level of humanity mm-hmm. provides 
not just the specificity to get the solution right, but also the motivation to keep trying week after week. And then to sort of shrink the change, right? Is that to quote you? Is that, um, <laughs> I like that. But, but Pulling from the back catalog. The back catalog yeah. of books, but actually Ambassador Power was talking about how shrink the change is like a big, it was a big construct for her and for her team too, because you also, in, in many of the examples, it's, like when you're talking about preventing women who have been abused from being killed, it's not like end domestic violence. Mm-hmm. It is how do we make sure that these women and the men, primary, I'm assuming primarily men in their lives who are assaulting them, understand that we are there, we are watching, we are driving by, we are on them. And the goal being like, let's stop the murder of these women rather than let's end domestic violence. So in the same way with the homelessness population of veterans, like let's get them housed, like as the primary and first step for what's hopefully sort of a sea change in their lives. But instead of sort of trying to solve all of these issues at once, I also loved the example of the Chicago high school graduation rate Mm -hmm. turnaround, because those are dismal statistics that no one thought they could change. Yeah, you want to talk about a, uh, a crisis situation back in 1998. The graduation rate in Chicago public schools was 52%. I mean, you're a high schooler in Chicago. You had a coin flips chance of graduating. And this is a massive school district. I mean, there's 360,000 students. That would make it among the top 50 cities in the United States. Uh, the budget of CPS is $6 billion, about the same as the city of Seattle. This is a big, big system. And one of my favorite quotes uh, in the book is from a guy named Paul Batalden, who said, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a deep quote, because what it makes you realize is if you've got a district that is failing half of its students year after year, that's not a failure of of good intentions. That's not a failure of, of motivation. That's a systems failure. It means you've actually organized yourself in a way that makes it efficient to fail half your students every year. And so thankfully at CPS, there were a bunch of leaders who just found this intolerable and they set about to try to change it. And the the first couple of breaks they have were, number one, some academics, including uh, Elaine Allensworth, found that you could predict with 80% certainty in the ninth grade year, who was going to graduate and who was going to drop out in the ninth grade, I mean, four years before. And so for the first time, they had this kind of smoke detector to give them early warning that the problem was coming. And it bought them some precious runway, some precious time to try to alter that trajectory. They also realized, back to this notion of the system being designed for failure, some of their own policies were sabotaging their students. Like One example was, this was the era of, of zero tolerance on discipline. And as, as one person told me, in this era, a couple of kids shove each other in the hallway, just, you know, teenage antics. Both of them would get slapped with a two-week suspension. Mm-hmm. They were doled out like candy. And it seems like, well, that's a good idea. You're being tough on discipline. You're showing, uh, uh, you know, you're going to take this stuff seriously. But the reality is if you take a kid who's on the cusp, who's at risk, you kick them out of school for two weeks, guess what happens? They come back, they're lost. Mm-hmm. They can't catch up. They end up failing courses. And that metric I talked about that could predict who was going to graduate and who wouldn't, it's called freshman on track. Kicking students out of school was a great way to get them off track. 
And so no one, if you think about the assistant principal who doled out that suspension, I mean, that person never knew that kicking a student out of school for two weeks might well doom them to not graduating from high school. And ruin the rest of their lives, right? Exactly right. One of the primary factors in it's just it's it's invisible. It's it's yeah. it's covered under layers of you know rationalization and the absence of data, and so you can fix things like that. They change the discipline policies. They say if we're going to graduate more kids, we got to stop self sabotaging. Maybe the most profound thing they did, and and this goes back to the story of Rockford, they started having all the the freshman faculty. You know, typically teachers meet in their silos, biology with biology and English with English. They started meeting all together and going student by student, you know, just like they did in Rockford with homeless people. They started going student by student for kids who were at risk in the ninth grade. And they would do the same thing. They would say, okay, how did Keisha do last week? But did, did she come to school every day? Okay, how's she doing? Are she getting her grades up in math? You know, how's Michael doing? Well, uh, he has to walk his little sister to school every morning, so he keeps showing up late. And so they might say, hmm, well, let's get him in P.E. first period, because then it won't really matter if he fails P.E., but right now he's in English, and if he fails that one, he's in big trouble. Mm -hmm. They're solving on this individual basis. And again, you know, micro versus macro, this sounds so small, right? How could you you change a school district the size of CPS one student at a time? But that's exactly how you do it. Right, and I would imagine, too, that when Michael knows that people – care deeply about his ability to get through his freshman year and are tailoring his experience to help him achieve that and have an expectation that, of course, he can do this and do it well. Like Somebody's that's, paying attention. Yeah, it's like the the Pygmalion effect, right? Yeah. Like of people sort of outperforming based on your expectations. Exactly right. And one of the things that they had to shift to CPS that was so fundamental to this is before they had had a mental model, they being the faculty primarily, where it's my job as a teacher to deliver a lesson, to administer exams, to grade them. I, I'm here to assess students. And what they had to do is they had to realize that was part of the system that was failing half their students, that, that, that kind of detachment, that I'm an mm-hmm. assessor. And they had to switch to a mental model where, no, it's my job to support Mm-hmm. the students. If someone in my class is failing, in the old model, it was, that's their problem. In the new model, it's it's our problem. Like, I have to be part of the solution if I care about getting this student out of school. And so if you ever lose hope with some kind of societal problem, let me share a stat that should boost your emotions. I shared that in 1998, it was 52% graduation rate. 20 years later, that had gone up to 77%. Wow. I mean, a 25 percentage point increase in graduation, which we're talking about probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 students who graduated from high school, who in the alternate world where none of this work ever happened would have likely dropped out. And those students, by virtue of graduating, will, will receive between three and $400,000 more in lifetime income from getting that diploma. I mean, this is a 10 billion dollar win from a societal value point of view the number of extra students times their lifetime income and what did it take it took a bunch of caring teachers and administrators changing the way they worked getting closer to the problem so they could understand it better it didn't require a massive influx of resources it didn't require you know assistance from the federal government they did this themselves by getting upstream yeah so let's talk about a grimmer problem although i know that like ozone is a good example of how people quickly got together to 
to solve that sort of and create the world avoided in terms of the ozone layer. I love this paragraph. You write, climate change is like a product designed by an evil mastermind to exploit every weakness in the human psyche. It changes too slowly to spark urgency. It lacks a human face. As Dan Gilbert wrote, if climate change had been visited on us by a brutal dictator or evil empire, the war on warming would be this nation's top priority. To address climate change successfully would require people to collaborate across nations and parties and organizations in tribe-defying ways. Finally, climate change features a mismatch of acts and consequences. The people who are causing most of the harm are not the ones who will suffer the most as a result. All right, so how do we get upstream and fix it? (laughs) I was afraid that was the question that was coming. Yeah, let me disclaim this by saying I I am not an expert on global warming, and and I do not have any easy answers, and I'm not sure there are any, to be honest. But, But one thing that I stress in the book is if you think about the situation and I know uh, I, like probably uh, many of you listening, feel a kind of learned helplessness about this. You know, it, it's such a big problem and yet so little changes, it can just be endlessly frustrating. I just want to offer the ray of hope that as humanity, we have been in this predicament before and not very long ago. I mean, we're talking 25, 30 years with the problem with the ozone hole. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, I talk a little bit about, you know, what happened with that and how people came together. And a couple of things I want to just pull out of that story. Number one, when they discovered that the ozone layer was being depleted by CFCs, which were chemicals that at that, that time were in a lot of propellants like underarm spray deodorant or, you know, room freshener, scented room fresheners, that sort of thing, they... Some scientists figured out that, that what happened is these CFCs kind of degrade the ozone layer, which is our protectant against UV rays, and that the result of that would be a massive increase in skin cancer, destruction of crops because of changes in climate patterns, and, and all of these horrible consequences. And, and the first reaction to this publication was basically a yawn. You know, as one of the scientists who wrote this paper said, it was like, we're talking about invisible chemicals that disrupt an invisible layer and allow more invisible rays to affect people. And he said, we couldn't get people to care. And so for years and years, they had to switch their role almost from being, you know, natural scientists to being advocates, Mm -hmm. to to shaking people by the collar and saying, hey, this is real. This is going to cause mass destruction and we can fix it. One of the things that happened in that story, I think this is a minor point, but I think it's worth emphasizing is the, the kind of public awareness and concern for this problem took a major leap forward when they started calling it the ozone hole. And I think that's a nuance, but it's important because, you know, the public is never going to be an expert on the ozone layer. The public is never going to be an expert on CFCs, but we get the idea of a hole. You know, when there's, some, when there's a hole in something, whether it's a roof or a boat or a sweater, we know you got to patch the hole. You got to mm-hmm. fix it. Right? So it, it becomes a kind of schema that gives us a shortcut to understanding and desiring to fix the problem. And sometimes I wonder if, if people smarter than me might not find some kind of equivalent of the ozone hole for global warming and climate change, which is defined by this, this kind of slow, slow, destructive progress. You know, you often hear that old analogy about how frogs, you know, will just sit in a pot of water as it heats up and and the water changes so 
so slowly that they never jump out. And isn't it ironic to think that, that actually we're the frogs? That, yeah. That that's exactly what we're doing is sitting in that pot of water as it heats up and, and never acting. But, you know, back to the ozone story, what happened is a bunch of advocates and a bunch of politicians with foresight got together and they passed a series of protocols that, that basically arrested the the uh, destruction of the ozone layer. I mean, it's not fixed by any stretch. There's a, there's a long cycle of repair to come. But at least we stopped digging our own grave, which would seem to be something well worth yeah. celebrating. Is that before, did this all happen chronologically before sort of, I like this term, climate terrorists, but before it became sort of a conservative ideal or before at that point the Republican Party and Democrats seemed to be united in this belief that this was a global threat, that climate change is real. And then the climate deniers sort of infiltrated the conservative party and made it a third rail conversation. So was that at that point was were we able to build political unity to actually get something done? And is that what is barring us now? Or were we already at that point? I'm trying to, it's, that was like the 90s, right? Yeah, well, it's the mid-80s, really. And I think the answer is yes and no. It, it's certainly worse today in the sense that, that it's almost like the resistance to action on climate has become a matter of tribe or identity. It's sort of like you just, you don't want to be the sort of person that believes in all that mumbo-jumbo about the environment. I think that kind of stuff has has really been fueled. By the, the Koch brothers. <laughs> whisper, whisper. But but it was also present in the Reagan administration, uh, which yeah. which took the lead on this. Conservative, of course. And, and in the book, I talk about one of Reagan's uh, cabinet members basically took what sounds like a very familiar point of view from today, which is like, oh, well, why don't we forget about all this stuff and just, you know, let people put on more sunscreen and sunglasses and and you you almost wish Twitter had been invented back then just to watch the firestorm that would have come from that comment. Yeah. Uh, but Reagan, to his credit, I mean, the, the, in a in a documentary on PBS that I'd highly recommend about the this ozone depletion problem, Reagan was initially skeptical of doing anything about this, and then he eventually came around, and his his logic was. Look, maybe all this stuff is overblown. I don't really understand it. it. Maybe the ozone layer is not as big a threat it's being made out to be. But but what if it is? Isn't it worth taking out some insurance uh, against that possibility? And I think that's wise. Yeah. You know? And and that kind of attitude with Reagan and Thatcher at the helm led to some of those uh, essential protocols. We need more of that attitude. Yeah, more upstream thinking. Mm-hmm. I love, I mean, for any parents who are listening, rest assured, the only time when we really master upstream thinking is when it comes to our children. Well, and, and, and I also, <laughs> and no, I, I nominate two categories where, in general, we're, we're just, we're, we're always downstream, but with our kids, we're upstream, we're, we're agonizing about, are they getting too much screen time? Is it going to keep them out of a competitive <laughs> college? And so with our kids, we get it. And the other thing that I think is just hilarious is, we are so upstream with our teeth. Yeah, It's like the most healthy habit we have developed as a species for the preservation of something to do with our health is our teeth. Yeah. I mean, twice a day, no matter how busy we are, no matter what's going on, no matter how stressed we are, we find time for a preventive regimen of scrubbing and rinsing to preserve our teeth. And They're women and skincare. True. 
there is no comparable regimen for, say, our heart yeah. or our brains or our lungs. Uh, is it just because we can't see it? Are we that literal? Or is it? do you really think it needs to be grounded in something that's very physically perceptible to us, like an ozone hole? It's a good question. I'm not sure I have uh, a ready-made teeth answer for you. But I do think it's something, you know, we talked earlier about the idea of shrinking the change. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's just, if we could fix climate change with an action we could do twice a day in one minute that wasn't really that much of a nuisance, I suspect it might be fixed. That there's something about it that is, that is both, one, easy for us to do, and two, habitual, where at this point in our lives, it doesn't even take effort to do that. It's just autopilot. Yeah. And anytime something becomes autopilot, it's kind of free. But so many of the things in the book that are that are upstream behaviors are not autopilot yet. It's like it's our challenge to make them that. Yeah. And the problem, of course, with the intractability of climate change is that the individual measures that so many of us are willing to make don't can't really do that much in the context of how massive and significant the issue is. Mm -hmm. So I think it just makes people feel even more helpless. I guess the best thing we can all do is vote. Well, let me pivot a little bit because I think I don't want you to get the message that uh, that the book is all, you know, depressing subjects where we should be doing better and but we're not. The book is actually full of stories where we tackled really hard, problematic things and succeeded. Yeah. Like the the story in Rockford about solving homelessness and there's a great story in Iceland about how this country basically wiped out the problem of teenage alcohol and substance abuse. I mean, it, of all the long shot missions you could conjure, can you imagine a society where teenagers basically just don't abuse alcohol? And the, the community in Boston where they, they wiped out the escalation of domestic violence to homicide. And, and then I should also say that, that this is not just societal stuff either. It can be personal. Uh, you know, some of my favorite stories in the book are about people who just realized they had some long-standing, recurring problem in their life and just decided, hey, why have I decided to live with this problem rather than just fix it? Yeah. Like there's a there's a guy named Rich Marisa who he and his wife, I guess every couple has their little thing that they bicker about. And, and his thing with his wife was the hallway light. So he would go in and out a bunch, usually to take the dog out. He'd flip the light on, he'd come back in, but he'd forget to turn it off. And that bugged his wife. And so that was their little marital irritant. And one day it just occurs to him like, hey, I can fix this. And so he goes to Home Depot. He buys a $10, what they call a light switch timer, which has little buttons where you can get like five minutes of light or 10 minutes of light. Now when he goes to take the dog out, he presses like the five minute button. It turns on. He comes back in, it turns itself off, and they never have to have that fight in their marriage again. I mean, he has purged an irritant from his life. And, and that's something that has kind of stuck in my head from this research is, is how often our adaptability as people, that we adapt to things so easily, that we often adapt to problems that we never had to endure in the first place. Yeah. No, I love this little anecdote too about... The guy who can't remember whether he's taken his pill in the morning or night. And so he just puts one on the west left side and one on the right side of the sink. And then he sort of makes sure that he, he 
to sort of solve that problem. I guess he could get one of those little drug, you know, vitamin sorters too, but that he sort of solved that problem instead of scratching his head every night to be like, did I take my drugs this morning? Yeah, he had this whole like home-brewed system for remembering his glaucoma medication. And and I've done the same thing myself. I mean, believe me, I'm not going to win any awards for, for this innovation, but I do a lot of writing in coffee shops. That's just where I'm at my best. And and so I'm always bringing my laptop back and forth from my office to the coffee shop and then back. And so, you know, I come to the coffee shop, I plug it in, unplug the power cord, wrap it up, put it back in my backpack, go back to the office, unwrap it, plug it in. And, you know, look, talk Forget about it. talk about first world problems, you yeah. know, but but it's just a little irritant. Like, you know, twice a day, I'm like packing and repacking this power cord. And then about seven years into this habit, in the course of writing this book, I'm like, hmm, what if I just bought a second power cord? And that's what I did. I put a power cord, I permanently installed it on my desk, and now when I bring my laptop back, I just plug it in, and one power cord always lives in my backpack. And it's amazing how long we can endure something that we might well have solved altogether. I mean, I think that's the upstream mindset in a nutshell. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dan Heath. For more on Dan and his brother Chip, head to heathbrothers.com. That's H-E-A-T-H. And make sure to check out a copy of his new book, Upstream, available now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.